Chapter One of the Custom of the Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrea Mossman. The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Chapter One. Undine Sprague, how can you? Her mother wailed, raising a prematurely wrinkled hand, heavy with rings, to defend the note which a languid bellboy had just brought in. But her defense was as feeble as her protest, and she continued to smile on her visitor while Miss Sprague, with a turn of her quick young fingers, possessed herself of the missive and withdrew to the window to read it. "'I guess it's meant for me,' she merely threw over her shoulder at her mother. "'Did you ever, Mrs. Heaney?' Mrs. Sprague murmured with deprecating pride. Mrs. Heaney, a stout professional-looking person in a waterproof, her rusty veil thrown back, and a shabby alligator bag at her feet, followed the mother's glance with good-humored approval. "'I never met with a lovelier form,' she agreed, answering the spirit rather than the letter of her hostess's inquiry. Mrs. Sprague and her visitor were enthroned in two heavy gilt armchairs in one of the private drawing-rooms of the Hotel Stentorian. The Sprague rooms were known as one of the Louis suites, and the drawing-room walls above their wainscoting of highly varnished mahogany were hung with salmon-pink damask and adorned with oval portraits of Marie Antoinette and the Princess de Lamballe. In the center of the florid carpet, a gilt table with a top of Mexican onyx sustained a palm and a gilt basket tied with a pink bow. But for this ornament, and a copy of The Hound of the Baskervilles which lay beside it, the room showed no traces of human use, and Mrs. Sprague herself wore as complete an air of detachment as if she had been a wax figure in a show-window. Her attire was fashionable enough to justify such a post, and her pale, soft-cheeked face with puffy eyelids and drooping mouth suggested a partially melted wax figure which had run to double chin. Mrs. Heaney, in comparison, had a reassuring look of solidity and reality. The planting of her firm black bulk in its chair, and the grasp of her broad red hands on the gilt arms, bespoke an organized and self-reliant activity accounted for by the fact that Mrs. Heaney was a society manicure and masseuse. Toward Mrs. Sprague and her daughter, she filled the double role of manipulator and friend, and it was in the latter capacity that, her day's task ended, she had dropped in for a moment to cheer up the lonely ladies of the Stentorian. The young girl whose form had won Mrs. Heaney's professional commendation suddenly shifted its lovely lines as she turned back from the window. "'Here, you can have it after all,' she said, crumpling the note and tossing it with a contemptuous gesture into her mother's lap. "'Why, isn't it from Mr. Popple?' Mrs. Sprague exclaimed unguardedly. "'No, it isn't. What made you think I thought it was?' snapped her daughter. But the next instant she added, with an outbreak of childish disappointment, "'It's only from Mr. Marvel's sister. At least she says she's his sister.' Mrs. Sprague, with a puzzled frown, groped for her eyeglass among the jet fringes of her tightly girded front. Mrs. Heaney's small blue eyes shot out sparks of curiosity. Marvel? What marvel is that? The girl explained languidly. A little fellow. I think Mr. Popple said his name was Ralph. While her mother continued, Undine met them both last night at that party downstairs, and from something Mr. Popple said to her about going to one of the new plays, she thought— "'How on earth do you know what I thought?' Undine flashed back, her gray eyes darting warnings at her mother under their straight black brows. "'Why, you said you thought!' Mrs. Sprague began reproachfully, but Mrs. Heaney, heedless of their bickerings, 
was pursuing her own train of thought. What Popple? Claude Walsingham Popple, the portrait painter? Yes, I suppose so. He said he'd like to paint me. Mabel Lipscomb introduced him. I don't care if I never see him again, the girl said, bathed in angry pink. Do you know him, Mrs. Heaney? Mrs. Sprague inquired. I should say I did. I manicured him for his first society portrait, a full length of Mrs. Harmon B. Driscoll. Mrs. Heaney smiled indulgently on her hearers. I know everybody. If they don't know me, they ain't in it, and Claude Walsingham Popple's in it. But he ain't nearly as in it, she continued judiciously, as Ralph Marvel, the little fellow, as you call him. Undine Sprague, at the word, swept round on the speaker with one of the quick turns that revealed her youthful flexibility. She was always doubling and twisting on herself, and every movement she made seemed to start at the nape of her neck, just below the lifted roll of reddish-gold hair, and flow without a break through her whole slim length to the tips of her fingers and the points of her slender, restless feet. "'Why, do you know the Marvels? Are they stylish?' she asked. Mrs. Heaney gave the discouraged gesture of a pedagogue who has vainly striven to implant the rudiments of knowledge in a rebellious mind. "'Why, Undine Sprague, I've told you all about them time and again. His mother was a Dagonet. They live with old Urban Dagonet down in Washington Square.' To Mrs. Sprague this conveyed even less than to her daughter. "'Way down there? Why do they live with somebody else? Haven't they got the means to have a home of their own?' Undine's perceptions were more rapid, and she fixed her eyes searchingly on Mrs. Heaney. "'Do you mean to say Mr. Marvel's as swell as Mr. Popple?' "'As swell? Why, Claude Walsingham Popple ain't in the same class with him.' The girl was upon her mother with a spring, snatching and smoothing out the crumpled note. "'Laura Fairford, is that the sister's name?' "'Mrs. Henley Fairford, yes. What does she write about?' Undine's face lit up as if a shaft of sunset had struck it through the triple-curtained windows of the Stentorian. "'She says she wants me to dine with her next Wednesday. Isn't it queer? Why does she want me? She's never seen me.' Her tone implied that she had long been accustomed to being wanted by those who had. Mrs. Heaney laughed. "'He saw you, didn't he?' "'Who? Ralph Marvel? Why, of course he did. Mr. Popple brought him to the party here last night. Well, there you are. When a young man in society wants to meet a girl again, he gets his sister to ask her.' Undine stared at her incredulously. "'How queer! But they haven't all got sisters, have they? It must be fearfully pokey for the ones that haven't.' "'They get their mothers, or their married friends,' said Mrs. Heaney omnisciently. "'Married gentlemen?' inquired Mrs. Sprague, slightly shocked, but genuinely desirous of mastering her lesson. "'Mercy, no, married ladies!' "'But are there never any gentlemen present?' pursued Mrs. Sprague, feeling that if this were the case, Undine would certainly be disappointed. "'Present where? At their dinners?' "'Of course. Mrs. Fairford gives the smartest little dinners in town. There was an account of one that she gave last week in this morning's town talk. I guess it's right here among my clippings.' Mrs. Heaney, swooping down on her bag, drew from it a handful of newspaper cuttings, which she spread on her ample lap and proceeded to sort with a moistened forefinger. Here, she said, holding one of the slips at arm's length, and throwing back her head, she read, in a slow, unpunctuated chant, Mrs. Henley Fairford gave another of her natty little dinners last Wednesday. As usual, it was small, smart, and exclusive, and there was much gnashing of teeth among the left-outs as Madame Olga Luenska gave some of her new step-dances after dinner. "'That 
that's the French for new dance steps, Mrs. Heeney concluded, thrusting the documents back into her bag. Do you know Mrs. Fairford, too? Undine asked eagerly, while Mrs. Spragg, impressed but anxious for facts, pursued. Does she reside on Fifth Avenue? No, she has a little house in 38th Street, down beyond Park Avenue. The ladies' faces dropped again, and the masseuse went on promptly. But they're glad enough to have her in the big houses. Why, yes, I know her, she said, addressing herself to Undine. I masked her for a sprained ankle a couple of years ago. She's got a lovely manner, but no conversation. Some of my patients converse exquisitely, Mrs. Heaney added with discrimination. Undine was brooding over the note. It is written to Mother, Mrs. Abner E. Sprague. I never saw anything so funny. Will you allow your daughter to dine with me? Allow! Is Mrs. Fairford peculiar? No, you are, said Mrs. Heaney bluntly. Don't you know it's the thing in the best society to pretend that girls can't do anything without their mother's permission? You just remember that, Undine. You mustn't accept invitations from gentlemen without you say you've got to ask your mother first. Mercy, but how'll mother know what to say? Why, she'll say what you tell her to, of course. You'd better tell her that you want to dine with Mrs. Fairford, Mrs. Heaney added humorously as she gathered her waterproof together and stooped for her bag. "'Have I got to write the note, then?' Mrs. Spragg asked, with rising agitation. Mrs. Heaney reflected. "'Why, no, I guess Undine can write it, as if it was from you. Mrs. Fairford don't know your writing.' This was an evident relief to Mrs. Spragg, and as Undine swept to her room with the note, her mother sank back, murmuring plaintively, "'Oh, don't go yet, Mrs. Heaney. I haven't seen a human being all day, and I can't seem to find anything to say to that French maid.' Mrs. Heaney looked at her hostess with friendly compassion. She was well aware that she was the only bright spot on Mrs. Spragg's horizon. Since the Spraggs, some two years previously, had moved from Apex City to New York, they had made little progress in establishing relations with their new environment. And when, about four months earlier, Mrs. Spragg's doctor had called in Mrs. Heaney to minister professionally to his patient, he had done more for her spirit than for her body. Mrs. Heaney had had such cases before. She knew the rich, helpless family, stranded in a lonely splendor in a sumptuous West Side hotel, with a father compelled to seek a semblance of social life at the hotel bar, and a mother deprived of even this contact with her kind, and reduced to illness by boredom and inactivity. Poor Mrs. Spragg had done her own washing in her youth, but since her rising fortunes had made this occupation unsuitable, she had sunk into the relative inertia which the ladies of Apex City regarded as one of the prerogatives of affluence. At Apex, however, she had belonged to a social club, and, until they moved to the Mealy House, had been kept busy by the incessant struggle with domestic cares, whereas New York seemed to offer no field for any form of ladylike activity. She therefore took her exercise vicariously, with Mrs. Heaney's help, and Mrs. Heaney knew how to manipulate her imagination as well as her muscles. It was Mrs. Heaney who peopled the solitude of the long ghostly days with lively anecdotes of the Van Degans, the Driscolls, the Chauncey Ellingses, and the other social potentates whose least doings Mrs. Spragg and Undine had followed from afar from the Apex papers, and who had come to seem so much more remote since only the width of the Central Park divided mother and daughter from their Olympian portals. Mrs. Spragg had no ambition for herself. She seemed to have transferred her whole personality to her child but she was passionately resolved that Undine should have what she wanted, and she sometimes fancied that Mrs. Heaney, 
who crossed those sacred thresholds so familiarly, might some day gain admission for Undine. Well, I'll stay a little mite longer if you want, and supposing I was to rub up your nails while we're talking, it'll be more sociable, the masseuse suggested, lifting her bag to the table and covering its shiny onyx surface with bottles and polishers. Mrs. Spragg consentingly slipped the rings from her small mottled hands. It was soothing to feel herself in Mrs. Heaney's grasp, and though she knew the attention would cost her three dollars, she was secure in the sense that Abner wouldn't mind. It had been clear to Mrs. Spragg, ever since their rather precipitate departure from Apex City, that Abner was resolved not to mind, resolved at any cost to see through the New York adventure. It seemed likely now that the cost would be considerable. They had lived in New York for two years without any social benefit to their daughter, and it was of course for that purpose that they had come. If at the time there had been other and more pressing reasons, they were such as Mrs. Spragg and her husband never touched on, even in the gilded privacy of their bedroom at the Stentorian. And so completely had the silence closed in on the subject that to Mrs. Spragg it had become non-existent. She really believed that, as Abner put it, they had left Apex because Undine was too big for the place. She seemed, as yet, poor child, too small for New York, actually imperceptible to its heedless multitudes, and her mother trembled for the day when her invisibility should be borne in on her. Mrs. Sprague did not mind the long delay for herself. She had stores of lymphatic patients. But she had noticed lately that Undine was beginning to be nervous, and there was nothing that Undine's parents dreaded so much as her being nervous. Mrs. Sprague's maternal apprehensions unconsciously escaped in her next words. I do hope she'll quiet down now, she murmured, feeling quieter herself as her hand sank into Mrs. Heaney's roomy palm. Who's that, Undine? Yes, she seemed so set on that Mr. Popple's coming round. From the way he acted last night, she thought he'd be sure to come round this morning. She's so lonesome, poor child. I can't say as I blame her. Oh, he'll come round. Things don't happen as quick as that in New York, said Mrs. Heaney, driving her nail polisher cheeringly. Mrs. Spragg sighed again. They don't appear to. They say New Yorkers are always in a hurry, but I can't say as they've hurried much to make our acquaintance. Mrs. Heaney drew back to study the effect of her work. You wait, Mrs. Spragg, you wait. If you go too fast, you sometimes have to rip out the whole scene. Oh, that's so. That's so, Mrs. Spragg exclaimed with a tragic emphasis that made the masseuse glance up at her. Of course it's so, and it's more so in New York than anywhere. The wrong sets like flypaper. Once you're in it, you can pull and pull, but you'll never get out of it again. Undine's mother heaved another and more helpless sigh. I wish you'd tell Undine that, Mrs. Heaney. Oh, I guess Undine's all right. A girl like her can afford to wait. And if young Marvel's really taken with her, she'll have the run of the place in no time. This solacing thought enabled Mrs. Spragg to yield herself unreservedly to Mrs. Heaney's ministrations, which were prolonged for a happy, confidential hour. And she had just bidden the masseuse goodbye and was restoring the rings to her fingers when the door opened to admit her husband. Mr. Spragg came in silently, setting his high hat down on the center table and laying his overcoat across one of the gilt chairs. He was tallish, gray-bearded, and somewhat stooping, with the slack figure of the sedentary man who would be stout if he were not dyspeptic, and his cautious gray eyes with pouch-like underlids had straight black brows like his daughter's. His thin hair was worn a little too long over his coat-collar, 
and a Masonic emblem dangled from the heavy gold chain which crossed his crumpled black waistcoat. He stood still in the middle of the room, casting a slow, pioneering glance about its gilded void. Then he said quietly, "'Well, mother?' Mrs. Sprague remained seated, but her eyes dwelt on him affectionately. "'Undine's been asked out to a dinner-party, and Mrs. Heaney says it's to one of the first families. It's the sister of one of the gentlemen that Mabel Lipscomb introduced her to last night.' There was a mild triumph in her tone, for it was owing to her insistence and Undine's that Mr. Spragg had been induced to give up the house they had bought in West End Avenue, and moved with his family to the Stentorian. Undine had early decided that they could not hope to get on while they kept house. All the fashionable people she knew either boarded or lived in hotels. Mrs. Spragg was easily induced to take the same view, but Mr. Spragg had resisted, being at the moment unable either to sell his house or to let it as advantageously as he had hoped. After the move was made, it seemed for a time as though he had been right, and the first social steps would be as difficult to make in a hotel as in one's own house, and Mrs. Spragg was therefore eager to have him know that Undine really owed her first invitation to a meeting under the roof of the Stentorian. "'You see, we were right to come here, Abner,' she added, as he absently rejoined. "'I guess you two always manage to be right.' But his face remained unsmiling, and instead of seating himself and lighting his cigar, as he usually did before dinner, he took two or three aimless turns about the room, and then paused in front of his wife. "'What's the matter? Anything wrong downtown?' she asked, her eyes reflecting his anxiety. Mrs. Spragg's knowledge of what went on downtown was of the most elementary kind, but her husband's face was the barometer in which she had long been accustomed to read the leaves to go on unrestrictedly, or the warning to pause and abstain until the coming storm be weathered. He shook his head. No, nothing worse than what I can see, too, if you and Undine will go steady for a while. He paused and looked across the room at his daughter's door. Where is she? Out. I guess she's in her room, going over her dresses with that French maid. I don't know if she's got anything fit to wear to that dinner, Mrs. Spragg added in a tentative murmur. Mr. Sprague smiled at last. "'Well, I guess she will have,' he said prophetically. He glanced again at his daughter's door, as if to make sure of its being shut. Then, standing close before his wife, he lowered his voice to say, "'I saw Elmer Moffat downtown today.' "'Oh, Abner!' A wave of almost physical apprehension passed over Mrs. Sprague. Her jeweled hands trembled in her black brocade lap, and the pulpy curves of her face collapsed as if it were a pricked balloon. "'Oh, Abner!' she moaned again, her eyes also on her daughter's door. Mr. Sprague's black eyebrows gathered in an angry frown, but it was evident that his anger was not against his wife. "'What's the good of O oh, Abnering? Elmer Moffat's nothing to us, no more'n if we'd never laid eyes on him.' "'No, I know it. But what's he doing here?' "'Did you speak to him?' she faltered. He slipped his thumbs into his waistcoat pockets. "'No, I guess Elmer and I are pretty well talked out.' Mrs. Spragg took up her moan. "'Don't you tell her you saw him, Abner. "'I'll do as you say, but she may meet him herself.' "'Oh, I guess not, not in this new set she's going with. "'Don't tell her anyhow.' He turned away feeling for one of the cigars which he always carried loose in his pocket, and his wife, rising, stole after him and laid her hand on his arm. 
He can't do anything to her, can he? Do anything to her? He swung about furiously. I'd like to see him touch her, that's all. End of chapter 1